What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to chapter 145 of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the interview with Chelsea Manning episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokitansky, Liv Agar, Julian Fields, and Travis View. I'm very excited for this week's episode because we are sitting down with Chelsea Manning, a network security expert and ex-intelligence analyst. As many listeners are probably aware, she served in the U.S. Army before allegedly becoming a whistleblower and releasing documents to WikiLeaks. A bulk of these came to be known as the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, respectively, because they revealed atrocities being committed by the U.S. Army in those countries. As a result, Chelsea spent years in jail and solitary confinement before having her sentence commuted by Obama in January of 2017. She was released a month later on time served. But in 2019, she was jailed once more for contempt of court after refusing to testify in the U.S. government case against Julian Assange. By 2020, she was released for the second time because the grand jury investigating the WikiLeaks founder had been disbanded and there was no reason to coerce her any longer. Today, we'll be speaking with Chelsea about the rise of Q, the alt-right, the radicalizing effect of foreign wars, the role of the media, and lots of other stuff. And then we'll do some QAnon news at the end of the episode. So let's get this going. Thanks so much for being our guest and welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hey, that was a way more serious and intense uh intro than I uh, then really fits my personality uh, uh, and That's I do want to cor- I do want to correct you on one thing uh, that is mm-hmm. that I actually spent four months uh, waiting to be released which was kind of a bummer oh it's like you're gonna you're gonna be released 120 days from now that fucking sucks a hundred 117 of those days were in the uh, were, were in the Trump administration as well so definitely a lot of uh, nail-biting moments yeah definitely a system that's like meant to reduce harm. Yeah. <laughs> in the prisons, totally. <laughs> so I wanted to start, I guess, um, at the beginning of this story. You enlisted when you were 20 years old. What were your reasons at the time? So I enlisted when I, I think it was 19 when I enlisted. Right. So that was a summer of 2007. The Iraq war was at its height. Every single day, you just heard constant news reports about the surge that was going on. And at the time, I was just... I was like a teenager that was like looking for purpose in life. I was dealing with kind of trans issues at the time. I was just trying to figure myself out. And my instinct at the time was to take the advice of my father, which was like, hey, like, because my father used to just bug me about the military because he was was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. You know, I figured what a way to, to, to sort of man up and rawr, you know, than to like be in the military. But I had one thing that I sort of had to compromise on from my father, which was he was in the Navy and he was always trying to get me into either the Navy or the Air Force. So I had to go the I had to go to the Army, and it just made sense because it was a ground <laughs> war. So mm-hmm. you know, I was like attracted to the idea of like being involved in the action and doing stuff. And I wasn't that political either. You know, at at like nineteen, I was pretty politically agnostic. I think around this time, my politics could easily be described as being as simple as, um, leave Brittany alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, so you you enlist and you get there, and is it what you, I mean, what's the immediate experience? Do you you feel like you are part of this ground army um, and that uh, it was the right choice to to join uh, that part of the military? Uh, That's an interesting question because 
the, the military indoctrination process is very intense and it's very long, especially going in as an intelligence analyst. Like I, I went through several months, almost a year of going through training, going through basic training, going through more advanced training, and then training again uh, to be in my specific unit and in my specific role uh, before actually deploying anywhere. So the answer is, I mean, I did feel like I was a part of something, you know, like I had, you know, I had a job uh, and it was more than a job. It was like a lifestyle because like the military is like a full, it's like a full thing, right? You know, like mm-hmm. you're, you're living your life, you're doing all of these different things. It's like a long process of developing relationships, developing an identity, developing like who you are uh, and figuring out where to go, wh- you know, what career path to take. So yeah, I think I, I think I did get you know I did drink the Kool Aid. You know, I mm-hmm. I was really, you know, I was I, I really felt a part of something, and I really felt like I was I was I was filling that role, and I was very and I was very serious about it. I took my role very seriously. I took my job very seriously. You know, uh, and, right. and yeah, I I think I think I I I I drank the Kool Aid more than most people in the military. I think. Hmm. And and so you're you're there among others. Did you have a feeling that recruitment was a similar experience for them? Did you did you meet a lot of people that had joined because they too were kind of searching for something? No, I I feel like the intelligence career track is a little different than the rest. So most of my peers were just like, or they were very similar to me in that they were like mostly people who had completed maybe an associate's degree or dropped out like halfway through college. Um, cause I went to a community, I went to a community college in Maryland for a few years before I, I enlisted. So I, I had the, I had the educate, you know, so I had, I was going down the education track, mm-hmm. s- struggling to like be able to pay for it, um, and work at Starbucks, yeah. which was how, where I worked at the time. So I, I think, uh, I was in a much more precarious position prior to than some of the other people who were clearly career people. Like they were very, you know, their their family had been in the military and they really knew, like, even though my dad was, was in the Navy, he was in the Navy in the like, 1970s. So right. I had no, I was not a Navy brat. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no military, like, I wasn't around the military ever, you know. So when I went through the indoctrination process, it was pretty clear that I was one of the least familiar with, like, what the military hmm. was actually like and what military culture consisted of. Uh, than most. And I, that may be a little bit of an outsider at first. Hmm. And so you get into your day to day, the operations, and you start to get involved, I guess, with um, what was currently uh, the project of the military in Iraq, right? Yeah. Um, Well, actually, no. So I was I was slated to go to Afghanistan first. Uh, We had our orders changed. So I spent so I spent a whole year preparing to go to Afghanistan. And then, like we scrapped, we scrubbed those order. They, those orders were scrubbed suddenly, and I had to, in I think three to four months, completely change all of the pre-deployment work that I was working on for an entire year. Throw all of that away and switch it over to Iraq, which was, uh, which was a nightmare. You know, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of uh, working, working late hours and working weekends. Uh, you know, did you eventually start to change your your mind about uh, the foreign involvements? Because you said you drank the Kool Aid. Yeah, whenever I deployed to Iraq in two thousand nine, you know, I I took my job very seriously. I you know I I was you know I support you know I, I viewed myself as very much a support role. Like I am supporting guys on the ground kind of you know mindset. 
and you know, like that that didn't change in you know that didn't change you know instantly. You know, like that was sort of a gradual process. And you know, it's it's really hard to because I I get asked this a lot. I get people ask me like all the time. You know, what was the one thing, right, that, you know, made you change, you know, that sort of changed your perspective and, you know, make you do these, you know, like, make you do the thing, right? And the answer is, is that there isn't really a one thing. It's a gradual process of learning and understanding what's going on, critically and analyzing everything, because you're basically getting this, this just deluge of information. And I'm a, you know, so I, I was essentially what would be called the data scientist in today's parlance which is somebody who digs into large volumes of data, finding patterns, doing analysis, doing statistical analysis, writing that through what we would call machine learning now. Um, it was a little bit simpler than machine learning in that it's like more Bayesian statistics. So it's not like neural networks or anything, but you know, the, 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 the purpose and the intent is, is very similar in, in, in sort of understanding like what's going on with the amount of data that you're collecting from various parts of the theater in Iraq and Afghanistan, locational data, attacks, intelligence information, and just sort of pulling it all together and trying to come up with a statistical projection or kind of like a kind of like a meteorologist, right? Mm-hmm. Like a meteorologist like gives you a forecast. It's it's sort of, and it gives you like chances and percentages. So that was very much my my role was to sort of give a forecast as to what what's going to happen in the counterinsurgency threat. Mm-hmm. And so o- over the course of time, obviously, American public also starts to change its mind about some of these involvements. Do you, what do you think the, the, the broad effect of, you know, the, the foreign uh, engagement has been on domestic politics? You know, it's interesting. In 2010, and I remember this very distinctly, I went on leave and... There was a Thomas Friedman at some point wrote an article kind of glossed over, you know, because like the Obama administration came in and didn't really change anything from really was just a copy paste of the same pullout strategy that the Bush administration had. But having a new president sort of created a public perception change, even though there wasn't a there wasn't an actual policy change. There was a sort of perception change. So the mm. news and the opinion articles were a lot more glowing. They were a lot more, hey, maybe maybe we are bringing democracy to Iraq. Maybe this wasn't so bad after all. And that I found that just so wild and bizarre and kind of like personally infuriating because it wasn't that cute and it wasn't that pretty and it wasn't that sort of like it was pretty clear that they were trying to repackage the war like the mainstream media was repackaging the war that they were criticizing just a year earlier, even though nothing had really changed. <laughs> I, I do feel like a lot of people felt that way, too. Just just kind of like, no, 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 we remember what happened. Why are you trying to retell it in this way? I mean, that alone, I think that reaction to the ongoing propaganda has had like a profound effect on American domestic politics and the trust in politicians and the idea that there's any justice. You know, I guess like right. having Obama pardon or not pardon but basically immediately say well we're not going to like go after anybody in the bush administration in regards to you know any of this uh stuff around the iraq war i mean we're we're sort of starting to see that with the trump administration i feel like Mm because it it seems like every time that something comes up 
in which they can go after the Trump administration, like Attorney General Barr and the Lafayette protesters, um, the order to clear the Lafayette Park of protesters last year. The Department of Justice is like, no, you can't go after them for this. Like they're defend, they're actually defending. Um, they're def- they're defending the office of the president. Mm-hmm. They're defending the office of the attorney general in in sort of saying uh, like, yes, this is like they're not saying that this was good, but they're also saying like you can't you can't question that. You can't attack that in a court because then it would then that would mean that we you would be able to scrutinize all of these other policies and all of these other things that we do, and we we don't want that. All right, opening the floodgates, possibly holding these people to the standard of the law is like, oh, hold on, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And so before we, you know, kind of move on into uh, the media and the alt-right and the fact that we we both study it in in very different ways since, you know, you you are definitely more of a a public figure. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the fact that during your time in the military, you also came out as trans. So, I mean, how did the weight of your disagreements with America's foreign policy intertwine with the weight of coming to terms with your gender identity at the same time? It's a good question. I can't really untangle it all. I want to be clear. I don't think that they're like connected, but I definitely had to go through this like period of time where I had to really grapple with the fact that I was also queer. So, and under don't ask, don't tell, which added a whole other layer of complexity mm-hmm. and confusion yeah. because it always, there was always this feeling of like, don't ask, don't tell is in effect. Um, trans people don't get access to things in the military. It, it is a basis for discharge at that time. So I, there's two policies that could basically have me removed if the if the military finds out. So and their policy was always to sort of pretend like it wasn't a big deal, like on the ground. That was what the don't ask, don't tell, don't ask, don't tell policy reality was at the time was sort of we're not going to dig into your private lives, but you got to keep it secret, which was always sort of a, a big downer. So it was a it was um, it was difficult. But the way that I responded to that, I feel like as I just delved deeper into the work, right, because I, so I ended up having less and less of a private life and just work just took over everything, you know, and I went to, you know, when I would go to sleep before I would go to sleep, I would like dream that I was working. Like it was that it was that intense, mm-hmm. you know, so I just had this like 24 seven. I'm working constantly. Um, I don't even have enough time to play video games. I don't even have enough time to to, to just watch. Wa- I mean, you know, the bandwidth wasn't great uh, in Iraq either. So uh, YouTube video, YouTube videos yeah. were a bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. And and so then, you know, after kind of serving in the military, you end up spending uh, how many years was your first prison stint? Was it seven? Yeah. So I spent I spent almost seven, just ten days shy of seven years in prison. I. I, I I had four months until I was released from prison. And then uh, the grand jury stuff happened in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a grand jury subpoena. And, you know, it it, it was a, about a year, I want to say. I don't think it was exactly a year, but it was uh, it was roughly... It was roughly a year and three days, I think, that I was in uh, Alexandria uh, City Jail for. Not including, like, a two... I guess it was a two or three day period of time where they released me it was civil confinement i wasn't charged with a crime right it was we're going to hold you until you uh cooperate with us and i'm i don't cooperate with grand juries or the police ever that's just my standard policy so i so i ended up being held for two months 
I think it was 59 days. Then they released me because the grand jury subpoena time period ran out so they could start up another grand jury. So they have to seat a new panel. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had like six days uh, of off time until my next uh, appearance before the grand jury, which we waived. So I didn't actually appear before a grand jury uh, a second time. Uh, I said, I'm not going to cooperate. And then they put me back in uh, back in the same jail. Uh, so, yeah, it was a little weird. It was a weird that, you know, you, you, you don't know how long you're going to be there. It's a max of 18 months. And they were charging you by the day. And yeah, the, oh, oh, yeah, I did get I did get fined. Uh, I got t- fined $250,000. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Over Christ. time, just... Like two hundred and fifty thousand yeah, yeah, dollars. in jail. It rocks. Uh, it's America. It that rocks. is the most American thing ever. <laughs> Charging you. It's actually not legal under international law. So uh, one of the things that we discovered, uh, and actually one of the one of the things that the United Nations discovered as we went through this process, was that civil confinement and civil fines for individuals is to compel them is actually not le- is actually not legal under an inter- international law. So it's actually an unfortunate sort of vestige of British common law that Britain di- you know tossed in like the 1800s. So, um, but I'm not an expert in that. I I, right. I trust I trust the lawyers on that. But uh, but yeah, it it it's it started it started a, a UN uh, it started like a whole UN investigation. But uh, the U.S. just can veto, I guess, because they can. They don't have to. They don't have to abide by human rights or anything uh, by by another authority. <laughs> we had a similar situation in which uh, Jake's feet on HBO started a human rights uh, investigation at the UN. And uh, They're too big. They, hopefully they will find him guilty of something. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you, okay, so, you know, in and out of jail. And, and when I heard you in, in another interview describe this period, you actually described quite a bit of solidarity um with other prisoners can you tell me how that was like and not only that but also you know you mentioned don't ask don't tell and uh the 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 transition and how difficult that might have been in the military but now you're in prison this is a a whole new ball game and (laughs) some of the conditions that they were holding you in with the solitary and all this stuff i mean it's very physical stuff it's basically abuse it's basically i mean i would qualify it as torture so 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 yeah so how how was that 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 period of um what were the ups and the downs yeah it's a good question um this is actually one of the more difficult things that i struggle with is that i've actually spent more time i've spent more most of my adult life in prison so like prison is the default in my mind right right so like everything Mm. everything in my life today that i live i I view through the lens of like oh this is different than prison right because like prison is what i know yeah (laughs) so uh i always find it you know i i'm i always have the reverse mindset of most people because you know people are always like what is prison like and i'm just like well what's what's the rest of the world's like you know what's the rest of the world like um chelsea's uh, selling and buying cigarettes uh, just randomly in her life like just like what do you mean this isn't how it works Yeah, uh, and no, I mean, you know, like, uh, smoking was banned in prisons in 2006, so, so oh, uh, that 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 might be a bummer for for some people. Uh, Definitely <laughs> a bummer for me. I, if I if I went to prison, the only thing I would be looking forward to is unfettered cigarette access. Yeah, it's, so. yeah, it hasn't it hasn't been allowed since like 2006, 2004 to 2006. The only result of that is that we we have like jacked white supremacists now coming out with perfect lungs, so they can like chase and beat down Antifa. <laughs> this is a bad policy. Policy. Do people sneak cigarettes in though? I mean, you got. I mean, I imagine people have to smoke in yeah, prison. Yeah, of course it gets. Of, of of course, there's a network. Uh, 
There's a network of everything. You can get anything, anything that you need in prison, you can get. Uh, it's just a matter of like what risks you want to take and uh, how serious, uh, like how like how serious um, the you you want to deal with the consequences because you're gonna get caught. Uh, somebody's gonna catch you eventually. It's a matter of time. And yes, to round this back a little bit and get a bit more serious again. Um, yes, they had a lot of solidarity with like prisoners because. The thing that I always find fascinating whenever whenever I'm asked about prisons is people understand the inherent like difficulty of being in prison and the the disconnection that people go through and the inherent violentness of the prison system. One of the things that I think people struggle with is that prison is a how do I put this? The most violent people in prison time and time again were the prison staff. Mm. Always. It was never there was never an exception, right? And that's just mind-boggling because whenever you have the state, you know, to back you up and you have state immunity and you have authority over another person, like almost absolute authority over another person, and you've stripped the other person's credibility away, then you, you can just do whatever you want. And the things that they do are just cruel. You know, you can not every, you know, sure, not every prison guard is cruel, but they Every single one of them looks the other way at the ones who are, which is, and backs up the ones who are. So it's just an inherently horrifying experience for anyone. And yeah, I I I've, I hold full solidarity. You know, I've always held full solidarity with people in prison who are under these circumstances because it's it's horrifying, and it's some of the worst. Vi- it's some of the worst. Some of the worst crimes that happen in prison time and time again, just go unnoticed because they're official. Hmm. They have that rubric of, well, you know, they're just not human, right? Pop culture kind of does this too. Because like, if you watch Law and Order, there is the good, you know, the quote unquote good people are the cops, right? Who do this investigation. And then there's the prosecutors who take this to trial. But that's not the end of the story in the criminal justice system, right? You have people that go to prison and they stay in these in these boxes for the rest, you know, for huge chunks of their lives for me it's it's definitely something that i i'm very passionate about that is that always at the front of my mind the cruelty of prisons and that disconnection right and they're always trying to monetize people i remember reading once about how prison wardens uh both private and public uh, publicly owned prisons have a tendency of talking about their uh, prisoners as clients or as customers, mm-hmm. right? So in their parlance, whenever they're they're going to like con- conventions and stuff, right? Because now it's become a business where uh, the fo- every phone call can they can make money off of, every visitation uh, they can make money off of, every letter written or packaged sent bought and sent they make money off of commissary to get anything reasonable or decent and they have a monopoly. You don't you know you, you don't get choice. You don't get price options. You get one company or two companies to buy stuff from and they just jack up the price because security, quote unquote. And so over time you you know you kind of get to know prisoners, you experience the cruelty from the inside and and eventually you appeal and you're released. Uh, you, you your sentence was commuted 
I got pulled out and I didn't have time to process either what what the hell was going on. But I got pulled aside and told that I, I was told like, hey, this is good news. Like you're being released for prison in 120 days. And I'm like, that means that I have to be here another 20, 120 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's like 120 days, like knowing, knowing that like at any minute somebody could change their mind i mean i imagine like if i put myself in your shoes is that like each one of those days is like is it real though 117 days under the trump administration too right and the trump administration made it pretty clear that they weren't happy with the commutation via tweet uh trump trump actually tweeted about it definitely a nerve-wracking experience and uh we had a pile of lawyers because a reversal of a pardon has not been tried in recent times but it's an open question still. I think ultimately the tr- one of the reasons the Trump administration didn't pursue a reversal is because they didn't want their own parts reversed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so over the last four years, and I know this question is going to sound bad because you actually spent part of it in jail again. But what were what have been some of the highlights of being a free woman? Um, it's a good question. So... I've spent most of my time in pandemic, in the Trump administration, oh, God. Um, <laughs> in uh, um, so one of the mar- most remarkable things about being released from prison was when I got out and I started actually interacting with people. So I, I stayed in New York for a few weeks before I moved to before I, I moved to where I'm from in Maryland, um, and whenever was that whenever for Whenever I got out, I was like, oh, this is different. Everything's changed. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it was pretty clear that the world was not the same. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, and I had, you know, like the cognitive dissonance, like, was broken and shattered for me. So I was like, this world's on fire. Like, you know that, right? And everybody else is like, <laughs> is like just trying to like live in a daze. It was like 2017. Right. And so like, I literally yeah. saw everything that happened in the last four years. I was like, oh, this, this is coming. Yeah. right so i i have it yeah. hasn't been uh a it has it's been kind of bittersweet you know like yeah i can go yeah i can go to the i can go to the store when there's not a pandemic and you know just kind of chill out and and i can talk about my experience at prison and i can play video games on on twitch right mm-hmm. um but you know being like the the idea that i'm quote unquote free is a, is a little bit of a misnomer i feel like especially <laughs> given the fact that yeah. um Society and um, the United States um, as a as a as a as an institution, not just as like not just as a uh, as a as a nation, but as as an institution, is is start is sort of starting to uh, reach uh, the end of its. Uh, the end of its um, legitimacy cycle. Yeah. So before we get into exactly that, I I was kind of fascinated by the fact that the New York Times and the Washington Post failed to show interest in the documents uh, that eventually made their way to WikiLeaks. So do you think that some of these institutional media outlets are just poorly prepared or just unwilling to shine a light on these kinds of things? I don't think it wasn't that they weren't interested. So when I reached out to the Washington Post, in 2010 in early 2010 it was pretty clear that they didn't really understand you know because i I wanted encrypted communications and they're like no just send me a text like it's safe it's fine right and i'm just like no you don't understand yeah and it never quite got uh that was the issue right it was Mm -hmm. it was an understanding of you know because i think journalists at the time were pretty old hat and they weren't really aware of how dangerous their job 
really at how like how haphazard sharing this kind of information was and they're having to learn this in a very quick in a very short period of time because I you know my leave was two weeks and then I was back to not having strong internet again right it was mm-hmm. like dial up right it was pretty clear that you know I was not going to be able to overcome this lack of understanding of risk, uh, how to mitigate that um, using Mm -hmm. technical means like using uh, email encryption or, you know, some kind of encryption protocol or meeting in person without electronic devices that it it just was. And there was a blizzard in the middle of all this, just to add on top of everything (laughs) else. Yeah. People act like I had this like plan or I had... You know, like I had the intention of giving it to a specific person or anything like that. And it was like, no, I want this out. I want this public. I don't care what it means. Yeah. It needs to happen. And I'm running out of time. Mm-hmm. Like I only have a specific amount of time before. And because I didn't want to go, you know, I, I didn't want to go AWOL because that means I'm in trouble. Right. Yeah. You know, I wanted to like go back. I, I needed to get back to work. Mm-hmm. So I had like this limited amount of time to, to, to do this really big thing uh, and not a lot of time to communicate. So I don't think it was I don't think it was that the New York Times or the Washington Post weren't interested. I think it's that they they there was a, a gap in understanding um, at the time. Now they've obviously changed their policies. So now nowadays. Um, the New York Times, the Washington Post have have more secure policies. So you you can do what I did in 2010 um, today through those institutions because the the means and methods have changed. I wanted to just jump back quick on something that Chelsea said because I'm fascinated by this. And this might be a stupid question, but you said you know you were talking about you know life outside of prison. You talked about yeah. being able to t- uh, stream video games on Twitch, and my question is that when you got out. Did you see like what video games were like at that point? And be like, oh my god, the graphics—they're so much better. Or like, was it kind of disappointing? Or yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it improved a little bit. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like uh, if you remember, like 2010, like there was like the difference between like you know, uh, I mean, it came out after I was jailed, but you know, like Red Dead Redemption. The original yeah. Red Dead Redemption is around about the graphics quality and the sort of storyline quality, and then I yeah. came come out and it's Red Dead Redemption Two. So you know, there's, <laughs> like, there's a jump, but there isn't yeah. that big of a jump. No, and no, no, no. and it's not like I don't. It's not like I can't. It's not like I can't get video game magazines. Like I know what the hell's going on, right? You know. Yeah. Like, okay. And I'm I'm around I'm around soldiers like who are between the ages of eighteen and twenty five every day. The idea that I don't that I don't know what's going on in video in the video game world is absurd. <laughs> um, so I wanted to, to speak a little bit about you know the things you have gotten up to uh, while uh, you were out of jail. You know, basically covering the far right. You said you kind of saw a lot of this coming yeah. and 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 kind of watched it develop. And we've done the same thing. We've gone either undercover or just kind of we just don't call our attention to our, ourselves, and we've been criticized for that. You know. But but uh, you you had an incident where there were these photographs <laughs> that surfaced at this alt right gathering. Just can you tell us what happened there? Yeah. So I there, there it's a very cringe moment of mine where um, I viewed I I, I viewed the alt the, the alt right as a threat. Um, and one of the things that I that I wanted to do was to be able to use my privilege and access to uh, gather a lot of information about them. And it's a lot of stuff that you know. 
it they don't really hide very well if you get close to them, right? You know, it's like it's like when when they're going where when they're going to do stuff, when they're going to have events, so that way you can have protests to disrupt it, right? And so I I got close I got a little bit closer to them because um, there was actually a, a huge supporter of mine, Cassandra Fairbanks, who was a Bernie supporter actually and had left leaning politics for many years, and I knew her. So I was at a protest in Berkeley in 2017. Um, I won't tell you what went down at that protest, but Mm -hmm. it was a pretty hairy event. But I noticed I saw Cassandra there and I'm like, what the hell is Cassandra doing up there? Because I know her because she was like with Milo Yiannopoulos, right? And I was just like, what what's going on here? So I wanted to like scratch that a bit. And so I worked with some journalists and some just activists, right, to, to sort of unravel this group. And I ended up uh, I ended up meeting some of these people in my off time. I just kind of was trying to figure out where is this going? Like, who are these people? And I just kept on gathering notes and recording things and, and trying to pay attention to like where what, what they were up to because they weren't hiding anything that they were saying or doing. Uh, they're grifters, right? You know, they they don't believe what they say. They just want people to make money off of it. And then I ended up at this, uh, I ended up getting an invite to, I don't know, like I didn't had no information about the event, but I, I ended up uh, going to this event, um, doxing the event. And we I managed to get a protest outside of the venue out in, uh, I think it was the meatpacking district in, or it was either Chelsea or the meatpacking district in New York. And I ended up going to, go actually going inside and into this event and being surrounded by Proud Boys and uh, like extreme, like it was literally like the, it was, I think the last major gathering of the far right before the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. And I got kind of trapped in there and it was a really bad look because I'm there and I'm just sort of like scared and surrounded by people uh, who obviously don't like the fact that me being a trans leftist person is there and I needed to figure out how to get out of there. And by the time I got out of there, you know, it was sort of like swirling on 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 social media that I that I like was chummy with them or friendly with them. Uh, and and I really fucked that up. Like I ended up sort of boxing myself into uh, really looking like and I re- really regret and I and I deeply regret like you know sort of like going down this path and that was a mistake but uh i did have the best intentions of sort of trying to undermine a genuine long-term threat as i viewed the right at the time because i didn't one six did not surprise me one bit right we all like all of us who were doing anti-fascist work in 2017 to 2018 saw a lot of this stuff coming and at the time, I think that more liberal-minded people were just sort of like Trump bad, orange man bad, but they didn't, but they weren't, they, they viewed the electoral system as the main way to deal with them. Uh, and I, w- and, and, uh, I was a lot more skeptical uh, because of coup attempts, because of putches, you know, which were, I yeah. viewed as a real thing in 27, 2018, and that played out. So I, 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 I viewed more uh, extreme and or creative methods to disrupt them and to, to deal with them as being legitimate, as being uh, proportional. 
And this method, uh, I think, ended up not being the best uh, and appropriate thing for me and my role and my position being an extremely public figure because they were able to flip the script on that. Um, right. But I still, you know, I still support those who, who do that kind of work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, speaking of the Proud Boys, uh, before we jump into the fact that you somehow were into QAnon before us, so cooler than us. I saw this Definitely coming. cooler than Liv. Liv, mm-hmm. Liv is last. Let's be very clear. She got to this <laughs> two weeks ago, all for the clout. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. What is, um, this, what is this QAnon thing we've been talking about? I've just been going along with this. Oh, <laughs> uh, So, yeah, one, one thing that I, I feel like sort of quickly disappeared from news cycles was this revelation that Enrique Tario, who served as the leader of the Proud Boys, had been working with the FBI since at least 2012. So like, what do you think this beads for the relationship between the feds and the ongoing violent actions between 2012 and now that the Proud Boys like literally organized and participated in so many ways? Yeah, they're they're super chummy. They're super ch- like feds are super chummy with uh, with all the far right groups, really, because um, they they like them. Right. You know, so I think that with Tario, for instance, um, and it wasn't just the FBI, it was like multiple law enforcement agencies. Right. Um, you know, ATF, you know, he was an informant for so many different, uh, law enforcement agencies, um, especially in Portland, I think, um, like the PPB, the, the Portland uh, police bureau, for instance, you know, you've got like Joey Gibson, who's extremely chummy with the Portland police, police bureau, the PPA, the Portland, uh, police association, or in here in the NYPD, uh, with New York, you have both the New York police department and you have the Police Benevolence Association, which is a which is a pretty interesting name to call yourself whenever you're a police un- uh, when you're a police quote unquote union. The uh, Good Guys Company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's less indicative of like, uh, of course, all these people are, are, are snitching on each other, right? Because they're all trying to get better positions in, le- in leadership positions and have better relationships, and also avoid getting in trouble for what they're doing. But also, I think I, I, I think it's important to remember that a lot of these federal agencies are sort of pulling uh, a um, Whitey Bulger here, where they're like, "Oh well, if we're if we're chummy with some of the organized criminals that we do like, um, then we can we can go after some people, look good." And all we have to do is sort of give these folks a pass. So I think that it was a two-way... I, I think it was actually more of a two-way street that ended up biting them in the ass, obviously, after after 1-6, right? They because they can't they, possibly be excited about 1-6. They can't possibly be like, we. No. this was the, the goal. <laughs> they, they can't be stoked. Because the fa- because the fascists finally turned on the police on, on the police agencies and the federal... Uh, like the federal agencies, they finally flipped, right? They finally went a cab, and they did. Th- and as soon as that <laughs> happened, they're like, "Okay, all this stuff that we've been digging up dirt on you, like it's your game now." And so, okay, so tell us about, um, you know, uh, finding out about QAnon before us. Humiliate us. Okay, so QAnon were a couple of weird drops that I noticed. Right, this was before the big bakers came in. This was before the grifters started, right? And a few of these accounts, and I'm not sure if I actually beat you to it. I think it was around the same time. So I'm not going to make that claim, right? But in early 2018, I became aware of this of this individual calling himself Q that was posting on 
on either was it 4chan or 8chan? I think it was 8chan, and it's now it was 8chan. 4chan started on 4chan. Yeah, 4chan yeah. at first, and then and then it moved. Yeah, and and I, I and I saw the st- stuff just start to, to to sort of catch fire, and it was it was. It was it was a little bit before they started going with the like elder the elders of Zion approach where it became like extremely pedophile-y. but it, it it caught people's attention because it's like I have information Hillary Clinton is going to be arrested right and it is sort of like that was like, and that was like the key thing was like oh there's all these indictments it, it it sort of became a counter to the Mueller conspiracy theorists that were going on on mm-hmm. the le- on sort of the lip among libs right at the right. time mm-hmm. that was how i viewed it at the time was like oh, okay like the indictments are coming in the in the Mueller report any day now right you know if, if you mm-hmm. if you follow palmer report right you know yeah, trump's right. going to prison like 3 p.m you know like yeah. it was just it was just it, it's, it felt like a it felt like a counter to that at first for me but i thought but what i found interesting was the 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 same network of signal boosters that i noticed in the alt-right which share this information with all of their different groups and signal boost it, right? Because they have like an A-B test, right? So the way the alt-light at the, in 2017, 2018 operated is they would post something wild and cringy at, with a smaller account, right? And they would A-B test to see what catches fire and what doesn't. And they would have the bigger accounts do the, the bigger and bigger things like the things that caught fire. So they were able to construct a narrative out of what would go the most viral fastest. And Mm -hmm. I felt that Q that Q posts and Q drops at that time were a B tests because not every single Q drop caught fire. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And it, it's, it, it also is a perfect extension of what was already happening on the chance. They were just always like uh, a B testing memes until like the right one took off. One's actual extremely, um, extremely well educated into actual Nazi ideology and actual fascist sort of strategy came into being that's when you started seeing the 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 the, the um, pedophilia. That's when you started mm-hmm. seeing the uh, the like fourteen eighty eight type stuff. Because it you know it was like it was like there was like a, sh- a change in the tone with Q drops, right? Yeah. And there was a change in how they they were baked, and a lot of this happened. I feel like not not as a result of, but certainly came after. A lot of the um, the sort of bans and attacks of accounts um, that were uh, on um, more mainstream platforms um, in uh, around the time that Bowers uh, the um, the Pittsburgh shooter happened, right? Because mm-hmm. that happened in late 2018, and I feel like what may you know I've always felt that what what happened is that the Q community was a lot of people who had these very explicitly Nazi ideologies who couldn't post as Nazis anymore. Therefore, they found a way to bring this this weirder, more anonymous uh, culture and sort of latch onto it and sort of like 
buy into the uh, anonymity. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, that, that's sort of the direction. That's sort of when I noticed a direction change was right around uh, late 2018, early 2019. And then things obviously ex- blew up as soon as the pandemic happened. Right. And so in 2019, you uh, saw uh, like this kind of Q community passing around this, um, this video of AOC dancing. And so you texted her about it. What happened there? I did. Oh, yeah. So one of the funniest moments is that in January 2019, it was like January 9th of 20 of 2019, um, a QAnon account that I was that I was paying attention to um, was like Q Anonymous 1776, right? Was like the account name, like typical on brand, um, Q, like like uh, Q baking account, right? Um, they dug up this video this extremely cute video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, like dancing in college, right? Which was like on YouTube before, but they signal boosted this and, and they tried to, to use this as like a smear attack. And it was funny because it went, it immediately went viral, but it went viral in a completely different way. And I texted Alex uh, as soon as that account like posted that. I was like, hey, hey, this video uh, this video popped up, and it lo- it actually makes you look great. Like you look awesome. Like this is this is one of the coolest things. Like you're one of the coolest people in the world for this. Um, and uh, and yeah, and it blew up, and I you know it became sort of a meme uh, at the time, and it became such a a, a positive boost for Alex at the time uh, that uh, that this QAnon account just ghost it just disappeared it, like deleted its account and it never reappeared again <laughs> it had a ton of followers it had like seventy thousand followers this is a big account instead of remaining in the fringes q jumped into the national spotlight in part due to the success of politicians like marjorie taylor green you know what do you think of her rise and uh, others like her you know what i find fascinating about marjorie taylor green is that she is like a perfect example of of somebody who has been there the whole time right it's pretty mm-hmm. early. She was an early adopter of Q. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's a grifter. I, I actually don't think that Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the, the like, all. She, she differs a little bit from a lot of these alt-light folks who do it for the grift. It's all about the money. I, I feel like she is a very much a true believer in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that she's, like, having to grapple with the fact that while she's been a true believer... In this stuff, now she's, like, in a different position, a different role, so she has access to different information, and now she has to, like, navigate that. But it's interesting because she was always there. She was always in the background. She was always involved in this stuff. She harassed Alex in, like, 2019, right? Whenever Q was not... Before Q became mainstream, you know, Mm -hmm. she was already fully on board with the stuff, doing, like, direct action protests, like, being physically present doing stuff. Um Mm -hmm. And really engaged in this stuff, um, so yeah, I think I think I think she's like a perfect. Her history is like a perfect microcosm of like the rise of the Q universe, right? And you know, you kind of mentioned this earlier: this crisis of legitimacy, people being dissatisfied with the material conditions of their lives in America. The institutions yeah. looking less and less like a solution, and more and more like an obstacle. Do, do you think that like January sixth, in a way, was a turning point for that? And you know, was it good for the far right or yeah, how do you how do you see that whole thing? So I view one six as one of the most significant moments in American history. 
And I think it's funny because we all pretend, like it seems like mainstream folks are pretending like it didn't happen right now because of how grave a threat it is to the legitimacy of the United States as like a, as like a nation because you weren't able to keep your process and your buildings secure. One of the most secure buildings in the world was overrun, right? And the world saw that. And that creates a crisis of legitimacy, right? Because you've punctured the the um, invincibility of this institution for once. Now then, one can argue, okay, like, yeah, the fascists already own that building. So, like, of course they can overrun the building because it's their building, right? They, you know, like, it's, it's these institutions already sort of fit the framework and the mindset that they have, and they already have a presence inside of them. But I do think that from somebody who has, like, a counterinsurgency um, mindset and understanding of, of this kind of thing, that's an event that you can't go back from, right? An attempted putsch that was that successfully managed to end one of the most important legal processes in in the U.S. legal system in one of the most secure buildings um, has punctured the invincibility of the United States permanently. And I don't think that I don't think that Americans are able to grasp or understand what's happening that happening yet but the depth of what this means is going to last decades right like they're like i think of it like this right the united states came out of the second world war with this in this air of invincibility this air of heroism this air of power and elevation right the the city on a shining hill as Reagan would put it, right? The branding of the United States for 70 years, you know, people around the world would take the United States seriously. People in the United States would take the idea of freedom of democracy seriously. That has been punctured. And I don't think you could, you really need an event as epoch defining as the Second World War to elevate you to elevate the branding and the legitimacy of an institution like the United States in order for you to to get the ability to say with a straight face we're bringing freedom and democracy through through use of force in uh some in some place that isn't even within our um our direct uh that isn't a direct threat to us or uh isn't that we don't have any back you know we don't have any influence over we don't have any you know, like, what What does the United States have to do with Vietnam? What does the United States have to do with Iraq, right? So in order for the, that those sort of policies to exist, you had to have this branding of, like, the United States as, like, being a beacon of freedom and democracy. And you can't do that after a putsch. So from here on out, whenever Joe Biden tries to say with a straight face or, you know, the, the head of the State Department, hey, we're about freedom and democracy— People are just going to chuckle. Right. And like that perception was punctured by a guy with a shaman hat and like a fake spear. Yeah. You know, like yeah. a lot of the coup people weren't particularly competent. So it's like, imagine if they were. Right. Nor did, did they feel like they were an ide- in an ideological war against the, the institution. They went in and they were like, oh, look at these beautiful paintings. They weren't tearing them down or defacing it. They were yeah. taking fucking like souvenirs home from this awesome, cool place they love, which is, <laughs> yeah, that's a very strange aspect of this version. And then it opens this vacuum 
so what what is next? Like, is this good? Like I asked, uh, you know, good or bad for the the alt right, and 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 what does it mean to have this? I, I guess revolutionary possibility open up in such a weird and ugly way. Um, I don't. It's hard to say that it's good for the right because it has significantly disrupted them. Like being involved in um, this many court cases, having a lot of their their central leadership uh, sort of uh, sidelined, having Trump have his Twitter account banned 13 days before he left office has been kind of shattering for their motivation and their energy, um, which I think is real. Um the concern that I have is that the right is able to co- is is able to now recoalesce, and they they aren't going to be as um, friendly to the idea of uh, of a central uh, federal government round two. I don't think. I think that the mm-hmm. I think that the far right is starting to coalesce around the idea of we need to take state houses. We need to have we, we need to eliminate voting rights. Like for anybody apart from you know, apart from essentially like white patriarchal male men, right? Um, I think that's the end state goal is to just is to just chip away is to just continue what they've been doing for the last seventy years, right? Since yeah. since FDR and chip away at progress, but using the state houses, using the governors, using the yeah. um. Because they can win those seats and they can gerrymander those places. And people and the mainstream media sort of just like it's just like, oh, red states. Ha ha ha. Isn't it isn't it funny how Texas wants to, you know, ban trans people from, you know, playing sports? Like, what ha ha ha, what kind of issue is this, right? But they're accomplishing it, right? They're doing these things. Yeah. And I think the federal government is ironically in less of a position to be able to assert authority over states uh, than it did because of that. So I think I think in the short term it hurts them, but in the long term the the crisis of legitimacy that it's created allows them to create a sort of counter to the United States, a sort of yeah, uh, act, a, a sort of more explicitly fascist, more explicitly explicitly nationalist, although not necessarily the United States. And don't forget the Confederacy was very nationalist, right? The Confederacy believed that they were the real uh, Declaration of Independence, people, right? They believe that mm-hmm. they were that they were really what the founding fathers wanted, right? So they dressed themselves up while actually committing this act of war and treason against uh, the federal government. They claimed to be to be the genuine keepers of the mantle of sort of national identity, right? And I think that that's what's what we're going to start to see happen now. Does this mean that? Kentucky or Texas secedes from the union? No, I don't think. I don't think we're looking. I, I don't think we're looking at uh, at a at a sort of traditional secession of union kind of thing. But I do think it's going to be a situation where we have a more and more extreme patchwork quilt, where you cross the border and look the laws and rights and frameworks that you have and the guarantees that you have in one state are just so significantly different. That it's almost like you're in two different countries. Well, and we're we're even seeing that now. The the uh, the QAnon rally that uh, Travis and I went to a couple weeks ago that was in you know Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, there was a woman there uh, who's running for governor against uh, Gavin Newsom, 
And she was going around talking to people saying, hey, we got to run for local office. You know, we need to take these seats. We need to do this. And and that is a far cry from what people were saying at QAnon rallies uh, just, I don't know, a, a year and a half ago. Yeah, the strategy is to take the state houses because you can take them. And so, but meanwhile, we have, I mean, there are obviously active and organized people in this ideological movement, like we were just describing. But then there's some that are just like sitting you know, in the kind of narcotic haze of terms like where we go on, we go all and like dark to light. And like these people seem to have a weird uh, warped yearning for solidarity and justice, transparency in government. And, you know, they're they're also looking to reveal atrocities they believe are real by way of an anonymous leaker. I mean, so, you yeah. know, how do what how is this going to work out uh, as far as that? And is there is there a way to get some of those people back into reality? Uh, that, that's a difficult thing because I, the pandemic has sort of scrambled everybody's brains. And I've talked about this in, in other podcasts, right? The experience that everybody's had in the last year, um, being in quarantine, having to deal with the pandemic, having to, uh, lock down, having to see the, one of the largest mass casualty producing events. We had mass graves here in New York City. Right. To have for the first time in history a contraction, the first time in the first time since since the last pandemic, we had a contraction of the U.S. population. Right. Um, For it was a brief period of time. We're now going back up up. But we had a brief contraction where the, the population of the United States was going down faster than it was going up. That's a traumatic experience. And I'm noticing that people are people are doing what they do, what happens whenever you go through solitary confinement or you go through some kind of restrictive confinement conditions where people who are going through that, all sorts of stuff happens to their brain, right? You start to become more susceptible to believing in stuff, right? And you have less information to confirm or deny your reality and you have less distractions, so you can really go down your rabbit hole, right? And I think that's what happened with, with, with the Q stuff, right? Is people started with social media allowing them to be exposed to this and not having the experience of their daily lives to contradict them. They just start going down this rabbit hole, right? And this happens in solitary confinement. This happens in restrictive housing unit conditions, right? Where you have limited numbers of people. You start believing things. You start – people seek conspiracies, and I think this is fascinating. Pe- people who are in restrictive housing units, like they, they, they start seeking different religious ideas. They start seeking, um, they start believing in different things. They start questioning different things. They start wondering whether things are connected. It's just, I think, human nature to sort of have, to deal with a traumatic thing that's happening to you and, a, and dealing with a traumatic thing, to seek meaning in that and to find, and to find some some greater purpose and find some greater meaning in that than, than the reality. Um, and, it, and, and so without anything to ground you, I think that that's what happened, but it's also happened with liberals too, where there's just sort of like, they're sort of just dealing with the same things. And, um, me, I've been going out and I've, I've been quarantining and I, but I, I've also been like communicating with people who, are out and about and doing stuff. So I've had this like contradictory opinion and I've, and I've gone through this cognitive dissonance before. Um, and I think that what, what I see is I now see people coming out of that and they're just in a daze. Right. And I think as people come out of a daze, 
they're going to start to come. Now is the time where they're going to start to have to grapple with reality for the first time. And I think a lot of these people are going to struggle, but but all of us are really going to struggle. And I think we just need... Everybody just needs to sort of chill and take care of yourself, right? Because it's it's mm-hmm. not that it's not that the lock it's not like there's anything wrong with the lockdowns, right? And I want to be clear about that because mm-hmm. I think uh, that that that's come up before. Is like no, the lockdowns were necessary for public health reasons because we had a mass casualty event hit the United States and we needed to to try to keep people safe. Um, but uh, the the impact of being locked down for a significant chunk of time uh, is going to produce uh, is going to produce an addition uh, an added layer of that trauma. Um, and we just kind of have to take care of ourselves and, and, and be gentle with ourselves. And I think that people who go down the Q hole, um, you have to be gentle with them. I Because anything that you, th- if you try to throw them facts, if you try to throw, you know, argue with them, they have, that's not going to, it's right. It'll just brush, you know, they're, they're, they're too far gone. You know, you can't, you can't do that. What you can do, I feel like is, and it's, it's hard because some of them are so far gone that, you know, they're dangerous. And some of them are, are, are only so far gone that, um, that y- you could start to pull them out if you, if you engage with them, but not engage with them on the topics that they're talking about. So mm-hmm. like, if you instead like play tennis with them or you play basketball with them, or you have a, you know, if you have a more positive, if you have like a constructive relationship with them that has nothing to do with politics, maybe you can, uh, maybe you could start to, to, to ground them again, but it's a hard, it's, it's hard to know because some, some, some of them are so far gone and so dangerous and unstable that there's a hazard and a risk in, the, in even doing that. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's a case by case basis. One question I have, and this is, you know, speaking to their kind of um, belief system, many of them, you know, they kind of go either way on whistleblowers. Many of them love Assange, but they'll like hate Snowden. They'll call one person a traitor and the other person's a hero. So what do you think of this weird, inconsistent relationship they have uh, with that? I mean, because there's just no, re- I mean, they're, 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 their facts aren't grounded in reality. So they, they construct their rely. You know, wh- one of the things that I find fascinating about Q, right, is that it's sort of a, a, it's sort of a, it's unlike religion, which has like a, unlike an organized religion, which has like a, a clear doctrine and clear rules. Q is sort of like a pick, it's sort of like a pick cherry. You can pick and choose the realities that you mm-hmm. want. It's sort of a yeah. choose your own adventure, right? So I think <laughs> yeah. that's one, I think that's one of the reasons why that happens is because it's, it, you know, they're, they're, they don't actually, they're not, act, they don't actually think about this stuff or care about this stuff. But they're they're trying to find facts and realities that fit within their their framework and their 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 sort of idea framework. And you know, I think that having a having a, a, a an extremely lefty trans woman uh, whistleblower who you know I don't even I don't even like the word term whistleblower. It, it it's it's like a night. It's like a it it, ha- it gives me the it conjures up the image of of a of a of a nineteen ten police officer is about to beat like a, a union organizer right you know like the, that, that, that's what I, that's what i see right you know so yeah. i don't i don't like that term i just view myself as an activist right but like to mm-hmm. be this activist person who is viewed as a whistleblower is a contradiction of sort of their value set right you know because mm-hmm. it's like yeah i'm 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 very far left on i i have no interest in 
I have no interest in, in upholding your, your, uh, your uh, dream political framework. So I think that's one of the reasons why that sort of happens is, is they already have their, their viewpoints and they're, they're cherry picking their facts to, to, to fit that. Something I noticed with like, just like an anecdote with like a, a distant like family friend who had, who is like, was sort of Northern Canada, relatively country person who was like, not didn't want to get the vaccine was like vaccine denialist. They thought that the vaccine was sterilizing everyone yeah. who took it. But and she was like, should I take it? It's OK. If you're, I've been hearing about this. And the response that got them to take it was just like, yeah, a bunch of people have taken it. We're fine. Like close yeah. relatives around people who are just like they see them and are like, no, this is fine. This is a good idea. You know, the experts, whatever will actually help a lot of people. And one of the reasons why the a lot of this stuff has gotten so bad is because of like quarantine and isolation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's a direct consequence of quarantine and isolation. Well, one of the reasons why that, that's one of the reasons why Q blew up, I feel like. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I think. But yeah, arguing with them on Twitter or arguing with them on Facebook is not a good idea. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so Liv has some uh, questions for you, including a bunch of stuff on crypto, because of course. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> before that, I wanted to ask you <laughs> one last question um, about, you know, can you describe what happened when Harvard gave you a visiting fellowship? Yeah, I read about this this interesting snafu. And, and what does it say about the relationship of, of academia with this kind of military? industrial complex so yeah this was a fascinating thing that happened in 2017 so harvard but kept on bugging so harvard institute of politics the kennedy school um started bugging my agent my speaking agent at the time about coming to harvard to speak right i said no right because i they weren't it wasn't a paying gig right so I had just gotten out of prison. I needed to to make some money. And, you know, um, I was like, nah, yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't feel that this is like, you know, um, um, unless you're going to pay for 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 travel and pay pay some amount of money. I, I don't think I want to do this. They bugged my agent multiple times, time and time again. Uh, they asked four times with four rejections. Fifth time, um, I actually had an event in the Boston area. And I was already going to be in town, so I accepted it. And I said, "Okay, yeah, I can. I, I think I can fit this into my schedule." Um, so the Harvard thing actually wasn't that big a deal. Like they do this with a lot of different people, and it, it was literally just me showing up to Harvard for three hours to to to, sp- to do a speaking engagement, which I do at universities all over the country all the time. Mm-hmm. All right, this is not. This was. There was nothing unusual about this. Then social, then the right, the the right wing. I think it was Liz Cheney tweeted about it. Michael Morrell from the CIA, a former director of the CIA, who really doesn't like me. He has like a personal vendetta against me. Um, tweeted also tweeted about it and wrote a statement saying, "I am withdrawing from the the uh, from Har- from my fellowship at Harvard University over this." And it just sort of like snowballed into this thing, and. We were in communication all of this day with um, the Institute of Politics and the the head of the school, and we're just like, look, this is becoming a this, this is becoming a thing. We don't really want this to be a thing. Can we? Should we just pull out? Like, you know, like this is this seems to be more trouble than it's worth from my perspective, mm-hmm. right? And the Institute of Politics was like, no, we want you to come. We want you to be here. We want you to engage with the students. The students asked you to be here. We're not backing down. 
and they made a very firm, like 3 p.m. Pacific time, 6 p.m. Uh, East Coast time, which was their time. They gave us the ultimatum. They're like, no, we're never backing down on this. I went to go speak and I actually accept, I was accepting the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation's uh, Pioneer Award for 2017, right? Uh, I actually did an acceptance speech for the award. As I'm coming down off the stage, I get pulled aside uh, by my agent and my manager and a bunch of other people. Uh, and we get pulled off to the side. Uh, we have this emergency meeting and uh, they pull up uh, the Institute of Politics, uh, the head of the school, who, who's on the, the phone. It was like this awkward conversation where, where it's like, after further review, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> we would like to withdraw you from, you know, we would like to withdraw your your invitation to the Institute of Poli- you know, to the Institute of Politics as 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 a as a, vis- as a visiting fellow, blah blah blah. You know, we'd still like you to come, and I'm just like, I'm just like, you. This is you created this problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, I said no multiple times. I said sure. There's a controversy if you if we don't want to deal with this. Like, it's 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 easy for us. I I didn't get paid for the gig. I made no money. I was gonna make no money off of it whatsoever. And it just became this huge controversy. So I think it says a lot about how these schools use controversy to drum up their interest and support for events. And they 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 chose me with like Sean Spicer and a bunch of other like right wing people that were big names, right? Like Hillary Clinton's campaign advisor from the 2016 campaign, right? And so all these big names, and they slot me in because I'm a big name that year, and they created this controversy, and it was contrived, and and we didn't want anything to do with that. It became this big thing, and I'm I'm I wasn't mad about it or anything like that. It wasn't that big a deal. Like I I, I do speaking events all the time, but yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a very telling incident, and I think it says a lot about the priorities of these schools whenever they have these speaking engagements where they bring far-right people, right? They do this stuff to, like, generate controversy and generate course, publicity. Right. I have a couple of questions. Someone related to your upcoming YouTube video, which does relate to technology. Yeah. As well as Bitcoin. Uh, surveillance is obviously uh, an increasingly prevalent issue in our society, like facial recognition software, tracking protesters, you know, Amazon workers' efficiency being automatically monitored in warehouses. And it seems like, you know, both resistance movements and labor are deeply affected by uses of these developing technologies. Is there a way out? Do you think, can these technologies be used to foster resistance? Can they be resisted? What are your general thoughts? Yeah, I think I think there are ways and means and methods um, of resisting these kinds of things. The framework that I use as an expert, as a security expert, um, we use this term called threat modeling, which basically says not every single person's threat amounts are the same. So Julian is going to have a very different security framework that he needs from Liv, right? Because you're different people and you're exposed to different threats, right? And if you're a protester, you're going to have to take additional precautions and do certain things to protect yourself electronically, right? Whereas if you're me, you know, like obviously I have a much wider range of, of potential threats, including state actors. Um, so, you know, you just have to view each person's threat model as, as sort of the framework that they have to work within. And I think that 
you're going to use different tools for these different things. They're not going to be specific to each thing. And I think that one of the things that a lot of uh, Bitcoin bros try to do, a lot of people who don't know about this stuff, is they try to give you a one-size-fits-all. I highly recommend that people just automatically encrypt their conversations, like no matter what. So I, 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 I adhere to the idea that you should use Signal as a, as a means of communication over the phone. But um, that doesn't mean that you should use cryptocurrency in all, in all instances, in all, in all situations, right? Some people, certainly those who do sex work or people who uh, deal with uh, illicit substance uh, transactions consensually, um, they obviously have an interest in using Bitcoin uh, for, anon for anonymity purposes um, or at least, you know, like having something that isn't like paper money or that is electronic that doesn't require the credit card system like Stripe or some payment system. And so, yeah, I think that it depends on what you're trying to do and who you are and what your like who the threats that you're dealing with are are they are you trying to keep stuff from the police are you is that your threat if you're a protester if you're a sex worker um are you trying to deal with the far right are you know in which case sometimes avoiding crypto might be a better option because it's easier to get on the ledger a sort of trail and to get you doxxed unless you're using ethereum and then there's different people who they just live they're just living their lives they're being chill um, and how much protection they need to make um, or how many precautions they need to take. And I think that normal people should do more than they are doing, but that doesn't mean that they need to have custom routers or server farms or using, uh, using multiple phones or, you know, having a, having a, a shell company, right? There's different threat models. What about Tactical Oakleys? Tactical Oakleys? <laughs> yeah, I use Tactical Oakleys because they look cool, not because they're, they keep me safe or secure. <laughs> there we go. It's a good double-sided purpose. It does both. Yeah, on, on the question of Bitcoin, it does seem like there is this double-sided nature to it. They could use, be used for like sex work, for instance, possibly good causes. But then again, we can think of like it used on uh, on the right as well. I mean, yeah. I can imagine like with the stuff going on with Matt Gates. That if he didn't use Cash App and the with his name, where it was like <laughs> this is for you know prostitution of seventeen year old in in the message, but then used let's, let's say crypto instead, yeah, he would have been far less in hot water at the moment. What do you think are are going to be the longer effects of something like cryptocurrency? Like, is it here to stay as a currency model? Is it going to get more relevant? Is it a passing fad? I don't view cryptocurrency as a currency model personally. Well, I do think it is an is it, cryptocurrency is real, but I don't think that it's a viable alternative to fiat currency. And mm. the reason why is because there's no enforcement mechanism, right? And you see this with NFTs, for example, right? Non-fungible tokens are basically these these certificates that say these you know in, uh, encryption certificates that say I own this uh, this easily reproducible digital item, right? And this can be verified by the ledger, right? I am the thus the owner of this JPEG, right? Which is an yeah. I mean, it's an absurd notion, right? Because there's no there's no enforcement mechanism, right? For because it's easily transferable, it's easily movable, and you can't really do anything with it, right? Like what is it like? What does it mean to say like I have a certificate that I've spent an enormous amount of energy trying to obtain a hash value for 
and apply it to this JPEG file, like, what does that mean? Like, it doesn't mean anything. It, because society still uses fiat currency and it still uses physical ownership and enforcement and pr- pr- protection of these things in order to in order for the world to work, you know, as a currency system, right? Which is one of the reasons why at the at the end of the day, it, you know, Elon Musk said it best, you know, in 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 his SNL skit where it's a hustle, right? It is. Cryptocurrency is is a way of using the scarcity of certain hash values and the energy expenditure of calculating a ton of hash values, throwing them out, finding the right ones that meet certain criteria, which uses up an enormous amount of energy because you have to do mining, which requires an enormous amount of energy. So you have to be rich in order to like get the mining apparatus and the mining equipment because you can't do this on your on your laptop. You can't do this on your desktop. Like you need an actual facility to, to do this stuff. And you have these rich people who are able to do these things, obtain this, gather these certificates that say that they that they own possession of, of these hash values. And those are real. Those are tangible. And those are provable. So I think it's fascinating because these certificates that are generated through, um, through the mining process do have a, a kind of value but they're as a replacement to fiat currency. I don't think that it's viable in that way. Right. So I think that it is a that it is a true commodity, but it is not an alternative uh, uh, an alternative currency. Right. Um, and on the question of like Elon Musk, like he seemed to have been on the crypto train for a while, right? Even with like Dogecoin, and then he suddenly is seemingly left it. Citing, you know, environmental reasons, for instance, is there a rhyme or reason to that? Do you think did he did he use that for his personal advantage, or was it really just like he didn't realize the ecological response and that it looked bad? I, I think it cares more about it looking bad because one of the problems that te- that that Tesla as a corporation has now is that they're they don't have the air of um, responsibility that they had and the air of uh, being ecologically responsible as as they used to. So whenever they're trying to say, hey, like, we should coup Bolivia, right? They're, they have less sway, right, and, and saying that they're the good guys, right? So I think, I, think that's, I think it's a branding issue for Tesla. I think it has more to do with a branding issue for Tesla than Elon Musk actually caring. Hmm. Right, maybe the, the board of execs being like, Elon, you have to stop posting well, they're having they have shortages of materials now. And in fact, in fact, I, one of the things that I, I just that I've been learning about is how car companies are removing components from their new models of cars. So for the first time in several years, cars that are being made for the 2021 and 2022 um, purchase cycle are less capable than they were in the previous cycles because they're less advanced. Um, hmm. Now, the, the main portions of the cars for these model years are still arguably changes and, and maybe better in some way in terms of efficiency, and they look better or whatever. But these cars, because they're, 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 they're short, they have shortages of components, they're having to just scrap like electronic speedometers, right? So instead, they'll just go back to a, 
analog speedometer or analog gas meter because there, there, there are such a shortage of components and parts because the supply chain is strained so much. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, they can't guarantee, and they still need to make these models of cars. Tesla is going through way worse in this regard right now. Mm-hmm. So they need to have good relationships with countries that in which they can do resource extraction. And it's hard for them to do that whenever you have Elon Musk uh, basically just sort of wrecking the, the credibility of the industry. Um, yeah, tweeting we coo or whoever we want. Not a good look. Exactly. And so I think I think that's one. So I think it has more to do with sort of capitalism and uh, extraction of resources and trying to be actually bad than because in a sense, shooting himself in the foot is what he's done here. He's made a, he's made the company less viable. He's made he's made the ability to extract resources less available to him in doing these sort of risky brand moves of, you know, promoting Dogecoin or being viewed as off the wall or off the cuff for being eccentric, right? Because, you know, Tesla is now a major corporation and it has to do and it has interests to deal with and it can't it can't stay on top unless it remains competitive. And the car companies have realized the other car companies are able to now produce electric cars. So Tesla will not be the only name in the game going into the next decade. And going a bit back to crypto, People generally view it as like super decentralized and impossible to be like used by state actors or other or other erroneous sort of larger actors. Yet it seems like this is sort of not the full story in a lot of ways. Can state actors use right. crypto to their advantage? And like how? Yes, they regularly do, in fact. Hmm. So state, uh, state actors, um, not necessarily the United States, but other state actors use cryptocurrency to, to hide the trail of sending i mean it's even said like they're even sending money to their like intelligence officers on the ground right to like have a have a less traceable way or a more difficult to trace way of uh moving funds around without having to send it in a diplomatic pouch or something right you know so state actors can use it uh cryptocurrency is not untraceable it is traceable even Ethereum, you can untangle it if you're a state actor. You can untangle the ledger and find out with the mix nets who is who. It just becomes the cost is much higher, right? You need to have an active role and engagement. You have to be in- able to invest the resources to be able to untangle this. And it's not clear that the juice is worth the squeeze for them. Mm. So if they need to, state actors can untangle cryptocurrency. Um, I don't think that this is currently something that people that are using cryptocurrency should be concerned about. But the idea that um, your Ethereum transactions are perfectly secure and will never be traced is, I think, a misnomer. Tell us about a, a, a video game you like. <laughs> let's, let's jump off the crypto train. All right. I have been playing video games during the quarantine. I am very disappointed in the fact that the video games industry has basically sort of hit a rut, right? It hit, like, Red Dead Redemption <laughs> 2 came out, blew my mind, and I haven't been able to find a game that, a new game that has really gotten me since, right? Yeah, it's at the bar. You and, you and me yeah. both. And I don't know what to do about that because I've just been playing so many <laughs> classic games, so many games that are old, so many, like I've been going back to old games throughout the quarantine in the last year because 
you know, the new titles are just meh. So what are the old ones that you go back to? So I, what are the old ones that I go back to? I mean, it can be just like Civilization Four, right? Like, mm-hmm. not Civilization Five, not Civilization Six, Civilization Four, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really good one, I have to say. Yeah, you know, uh, playing games like uh, City Skylines, which is like five, six years old. I play a lot oh, of. Yeah, par- I, I, I play a lot of Paradox games. Like I'm currently playing a lot of Hearts of Iron uh, Four right, right. now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing that uh, as my streaming bit right now. I play a lot of first-person shooters that are like spacey, like kind of like Halo. So I, I, I've been playing the Halo games. I know that Mass Effect has, and I think it's interesting that one of the most creative things that's happened in, is that some of the franchises are doing remasters of classic games because they can't come mm-hmm. up with their own material. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Diablo Two's coming back. Just the like Hollywoodization of remakes. the video game industry is very disappointing to see. Have you tried Elite Dangerous at all? They just had a new expansion that has like it adds like a whole first person sort of aspect. It's supposed to be like a Star Citizen killer. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty cool so far. I've only played a little bit of it. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. But I've, I definitely know that. Um, I, I've definitely heard of that game. Yeah, Star Citizen killer. That just describes like. Yeah, and anybody. I don't know if it's possible Star to kill a Citizen. game that's been an alpha for like it hasn't seven even years. Started. It's so Star, dead. Star, Star Citizen Killer sounds like a dream for uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, tell us about this YouTube series that you're working on related to science and technology. Okay, so I first off, I'm going to start off with the fact that at one point I was bored during the quarantine, and I needed to figure out what I was going to do. So I started Twitch streaming. And another thing that I was going to do was, it was, it was I was going to, for the first time, start to do content production. And I decided to do use video because I have an interest in film uh, and recording. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to dive into making YouTube videos. And it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm able to record really easily. I'm able to come up with ideas really easily. Um, and in summer of last year, I said, Hey, I'm going to do a YouTube, I'm going to do a YouTube series. I'm going to start posting YouTube videos. Uh, I had a bunch of material, um, and I started putting it together and I opened up, I opened up a video editor for the first time and I'm very familiar with Photoshop. I'm very familiar with, um, Illustrator. I'm very familiar with audio editing programs, um, from, I used to be a DJ in fact. So I have experience with photography. I have experience with recording. No idea what I'm doing. I open this thing up and I'm like overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I take film classes. Last autumn, I was like, okay, I have no idea how to do digital film editing. Mm-hmm. I need to admit that. So I took film classes. And so for the last for the last six or eight months, I've been learning how to do video editing. Mm-hmm. And what I've been doing is I've been producing a YouTube video, a, vid- a YouTube video series that is documentary in nature. I'm working on the length. It looks like it's going to be closer to 30 minutes now um, for the YouTube mm-hmm. video length. I don't want to do these long ass video essays, right? Where you have these video essays that are boring and they're like an hour and a half long or two hours <laughs> long, right? Yeah, it's just a humanities essay, basically. Like I, I have the intent of having something a lot more a lot more like Bill Nye, the science guy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a STEM person, right? Like I work in science and technology. So mm-hmm. my opinions on stuff are kind of more fluid, but I really want to do explainer videos because I feel like some issues that are talked about a lot 
people don't actually understand what they're talking about. They'll have opinions about something that they don't actually understand. Mm. And I felt that way about cryptocurrency. I feel that way about uh, artificial intelligence. I feel that way about encryption. I feel that way about surveillance. I feel that way about automation. I feel that way about a lot of different tech issues, mm-hmm. right? Where people really don't understand what they're talking about, but they'll have hella opinions about mm-hmm. it, right? So I, that's what I want to do is I want to create video, video se- series in which I address that. And so my first video is on cryptocurrency, and it's just it's just a fun, meme-filled adventure <laughs> that delves into what cryptocurrency is, how it works, where it came from, mm-hmm. and and what the actual environmental effects of it are. Because I do think that people who don't like cryptocurrency are exaggerating it a bit. And so I want, I want people, regardless of your political beliefs, regardless of your philosophy, I want you to be like more educated, more aware of what these issues are and what they consist of. And so... That's what I'm trying to do, as I'm trying to produce that. And where can people find uh, those videos? Uh, working on that. So I'm currently in video editing hell. Um, I have a Patreon. If you want to support me right now, because I'm actually, financially, I am in pretty, I'm pretty tight right now, um, which is actually slowing mm-hmm. down the process. You can find me on patreon.com uh, forward slash XYChelsea. You can also find me on Twitter. At XY Chelsea. Go and support her, folks. Yeah. Uh, please support me. I, I really need it right now because uh, I'm I'm nearing the end of completion of this video. I said it was going to come out in May. I'm under delivering here, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. But, uh, you know, I've had a lot of I've had a lot of uh, difficulty with the sort of the reopening and everything sort of, sort of like all co- all this deluge of requests coming in all at once as soon as like I got yeah. vaccinated. Um, as soon as I got fully vaccinated, everybody's like, Chelsea, you need to come on. And you, hey, Chelsea, you need to come do this. Chelsea, you need mm-hmm. to come do that. So um, managing all of that and trying to be a video editor all by myself has been difficult. Um, you can also subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash XYChelsea. Um, I'm also on Twitch. So I have a Twitch I have yeah. a Twitch channel where people can hear about what I'm doing. Uh, it's uh, twitch.tv forward slash XYChelsea87. And yeah, you know, I've been I've been busy. I have been working, you know, mm-hmm. 80, 90 hours a week um, trying to get this video at video out and doing a bunch of other stuff all at once with, with all the reopenings and things. So if anyone wants to see the first Chelsea drop, yeah. it totally exists. It's a secret <laughs> drop. It's a half hour video drop. Yeah. And to get that drop working, we're going to need you to go to Patreon and get and this uh, <laughs> this patriot movement going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i've become a I, so i have fully morphed into a grifter julian <laughs> Liv, you've sucked Thank me you. into this world um <laughs> it's very yeah, unfortunate yeah. but it, tur- it turns out it turns out that uh it turns out that uh that being being on the left and having actual principles isn't very profitable so i got i so i gotta i gotta change my tune yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I did want to say that early on in the podcast, we did a Q&A with uh, some listeners, and they asked me what my dream guest would be, and I remember saying Chelsea Manning. So, Aww. I don't know. That's the true. podcast That's is true. over. We're wrapping it up. Folks, this is it. Last episode. <laughs> All right. Bye.
<laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to thank you for, for coming on the show, Chelsea, and also invite you if you'd like to stay for the QAnon news, which is the final little uh, Let's segment do it. here. Yeah, we're going to have a <laughs> cool. little segment where we're, we're basically we're just going to talk about the, the, the big event in Dallas that's going on right now, because we're going to need to touch on that if we're going to be a respectable QAnon podcast. QAnon News. From main story, uh, QAnon followers and promoters gather in Dallas for the biggest QAnon event yet. If y'all remember, back in uh, September of 2019 on a uh, sweltering 9-11, Julie and I gathered for the first ever QAnon event in which a few dozen QAnon followers gathered for a small, free sort of gathering right in front of the Washington Monument. And since then, things have gotten a little out of hand because... <laughs> Over Memorial Day weekend here, uh, there was a three-day event in Dallas that was $500 ahead or $1,000 if you sprung for the VIP tickets. It's, Q- it's Q-Cella. Yeah, it it was packed. There's three days of adrenochrome um, calling for coups. It's uh, a fun time for all. Attendees could hear from QAnon promoters like Jordan Sather, Red Pill 78, and the Kate Awakening. They could also hear from QAnon heroes Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn in a sign that the movement is gaining even more mainstream acceptance. They could also hear from Congressman Louis Gohmert and Texas GOP Chair Alan West. So That's quite a lineup. Yes, it's, it's, it's quite impressive. And you know what? I have to say, I don't, I don't want to have to give it to them, but it was well-produced, too. Everything was well-lit. The live stream had, like, three cameras that transitioned really well. Yes, the, the amount of money going into this is uh, terrifying, especially because the logo for the actual event, the cowboy hat that, that was kind of their sort of, like, main stage logo, had WWG1, WGA on it. I mean, they were yeah. not really trying to hide uh, the fact that it was a blatant, you know, QAnon, right, QAnon yes. event. Right, yes. It was organized by by a guy who goes by the name QAnon John, who, <laughs> in a couple in a couple of of uh, interviews with media outlets, he tried to deny it was a QAnon mo- uh, rally or event. It's absolute madness. Unfortunately, I was not able to attend. I had bought two tickets for myself and Jake, but the organizers refunded them and then told me that I was not welcome because they thought I was lying about the Q movement. They 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 kicked me out for freedom of speech. Liv, you should have you should have asked your CIA contact for uh, access. That's true. I should have got they they let CIA people in for free. I think, or they got mm-hmm. a bonus, so I should have took advantage. I saw at least <laughs> one of them called Brace. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Will Sommer, he also bought a ticket, and he did make it, but he was kicked out on the second day. The organizers, it was right in the middle of the event, as as Michael Flynn was ranting about the media, apparently. The organizers claimed that they had canceled Will Sommer's ticket, but this was evidently not true at all. I think they confused him for you. I think that they, because they were saying <laughs> that they refunded his ticket. So Jordan Sather... Uh, for you know, basically got Will Sommer kicked out. He filmed the whole thing. He then showed it to Flynn later and claims that Flynn laughed because other people in the QAnon community were like, this is not us. We don't kick people out. So... Yeah, it's that little weasel, and he he had the only genuine uh, joy that I've ever seen cross his his tawdry little visage uh, (laughs) as he fucking escorted him out on video. And the cops were like borderline. If 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 Will slowed down, it felt like the cops would have manhandled him. Like that was the level of escorting him out that was happening. Well, I mean, you know what they say: when you're over the target, you get flack. And 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 the 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 female cop said, um, you know. D- don't be coming back now. 
The event featured Sidney Powell speculating that Trump would simply be reinstated as president after all the supposed fraud is uh, uh, discovered. He can simply be reinstated, that a new inauguration date is set. And Biden is told to move out of the White House. And, <laughs> and, and, and President Trump should be moved back in. I, I'm sure there's not going to be credit for time lost, unfortunately, because the Constitution itself sets the date for inauguration. But he should definitely get the remainder of his term and and make the best of it. That's for sure. Yeah, what they want is like not only for Trump to be reinstated, but also get the extra months of Biden's presidency to make up for all that time lost. High ask. But this speaks to what you were saying, Chelsea. It's like there's going to be like a coalition of 12 states inaugurating their president while like halfway across the country, like another coalition of seven are doing their president. We can all have our own presidents. Why? Let's just inaugurate <laughs> people whenever we all feel like that's something we need. I think it's interesting that Sidney Powell, who is essentially one of the least credible people in the world, is just going full, full on with this stuff, right? Because like the right is kind of moving on and they're trying to figure out how to how to deal with this, this cognitive dissonance that's happening between the Q movement and the far right. The event also featured General Michael Flynn endorsing a military coup like the type that happened in Myanmar. I'm a simple Marine. I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen Minimar. No reason. I mean, it, it should happen. No reason. But that's right. One more. Now, I don't see why not this country called, I think it's Minimart. I think I think that Babart had it right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I use a mnemonic technique like minimizing my browser. Oh my That's god! <laughs> Minimart. I mean, we need a full fascist military coup. We need to take over everything. It'll be great. Right. Freeze It'll rock. Well, well, there's no way to protect free speech other than to to, to establish a totalitarian dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But this one has an open bar. Um. <laughs> See, this is this is the cut. thing. This is the thing about the right is that they just want to win. If there's anything I've learned from being like around people on the far right my entire life, it is that they just want to own libs. They yes. just want their enemies to lose, and if that means killing themselves in the process, then. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, suicide cults. Isn't there rules against former uh, members of the military uh, sort of advocating for the overthrow of American democracy or something? Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but okay, guys, one of those, uh, you know, we'll let it slide this time. I gotcha. <laughs> I think that hallway monitor's been asleep for a couple uh, decades, maybe even <laughs> centuries at this point. He didn't do anything, and no one did anything, and, and no one can remember. He did nothing wrong, right? No one should be able to remember anything. We should abolish Wikipedia. We should all be born today. <laughs> cool. So, yes, thanks so much again, Chelsea, for joining us. Yeah, yeah thank fascinating you. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so great. much, Chelsea. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for five bucks a month to get a whole second episode every week, plus access to our entire archive of premium episodes. Please also go to patreon.com slash xychelsea and subscribe there for five bucks a month uh, to help Chelsea uh, continue making video content, doing all the amazing stuff that she's doing. Uh, When you subscribe, you help us all stay advertising free and editorially independent. We usually stream twice a week at twitch.tv slash QAnon Anonymous. Other Twitch handles you can follow are Julian Field, Liv Agar, uh, Florida Flynn, which is me, and of course, XYChelsea87 on Twitch. For everything else, there's the website, QAnonAnonymous.com. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. Come.